0: Hi there, uh, my name is Kaushik. Welcome to another episode from Stories from the Andromeda. If you've tuned into this after the last one, Chandramukhi, thanks for doing it. Appreciate your kindness. And if you're listening to this for the first time, well, I hope you have fun either way. Today I'm gonna try and introduce a few aspects of Soren Kierkegaard's life, the father of existentialist thinking. I would admit, however, before I start with this, that I'm no form assuming a position of authority on Kierkegaard. However, having read Kierkegaard for the better part of my last decade, I wanted to do an informal introduction, one that would help hopefully spike up your interest in Kierkegaard and make you intrigued by a bit to read more about him. If he could do to one or two of you, then this episode would have served its purpose. Um, Let's begin, though, with the existentialist definition or the accepted definition of uh, existentialism. Here's the wiki definition. Existentialism, a form of philosophical inquiry that explores the problem of human existence and centres on the lived experience of thinking, feeling, acting individual. In the view of the existentialist, the individual's starting point has been called the existential angst, a sense of dread, disorientation, confusion or anxiety in the face of an apparently meaningless or absurd world. End quote. But it's been imagined and reimagined across across various forms over the last two centuries since Kierkegaard, 170 years. While he was widely regarded as the father of existentialism, uh, if you look uh, deep into history, you would find a colossal amount of existentialist thought in Socrates' teachings. Although uh, neither Socrates nor Kierkegaard themselves coined the word uh, existentialism, nor even spoke about existentialism in particular as much as they did about existence. Specifically, Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard's life is one of pluralism. The young children of Copenhagen used to scream either or at him when he would walk by the streets. He was constantly misunderstood and ill-represented by the people around him. A Copenhagen newspaper, the Corsair had launched skating skating attacks against him. Not only that... They also depicted him as a, as a magisterial hunchback. Kierkegaard, though for his part, did not get overly affected by it and his stage in life figured he was to be alone anyway. Perhaps the uh, middle-class, quaint, little, quiet little city of Copenhagen did not have any faculty to understand the genius of Kierkegaard or even possibly because of his attacks against the church and the system of church, they saw him as a threat against the established order of the time. The clarity of thought in Kierkegaard, along with a strong intent to find the inner voice, although religious inner voice, has been his most prominent aid throughout his life. Um, Kierkegaard, however, shortly before he died, wrote, and I quote, One thing I have come to know thoroughly, the abysmal lack of character in man. But how sad it is, there was yet some truth in me. And after my death, they'll praise me in such a manner that the young people will believe I had been respected and revered in life. This is part of the metamorphosis that truth suffers. In reality, the same contemporaries who have acted despicably will use the moment after my death to say the contrary of yesterday. And thus everything will be confused. End quote. Is this astounding clarity of thought and that uh, prophetic understanding of life and with an intent to find the strong inner voice as what is driven Kierkegaard through the stages of his life. He believed in seeking the truth no matter the suffering and much like Dostoevsky considered suffering as an integral part of existence and growth and as the only way to get closer to the idea of God was to uh, go through the vagaries of life and suffering. His self-discovery and his path to suffering is interesting though, given it seemed to have started from a point of religious suffering, unlike the social reformists, later on like Marx, before it became all-encompassing. But primarily, his essence is religious essence. His essence is of finding yourself before the God. But it is in that essence he captured several frailties of life. He was the youngest child and was born when his father was in his mid-fifties. He was born into a reasonably wealthy family. I think his father was a prosperous merchant, Michael Kierkegaard. And Soren was raised with strict devotion to church at home. Um, His father, Michael, uh, he grew up a poor man. And thanks to the Moravian preachers when Michael was growing up, he was riddled, much like all the children about that time, with sin and guilt which encompassed him throughout his life, more so in the later parts of it, when he became overburdened by it. He was an intelligent man, however. He was a great reader of theological books, where even young Sorin vacationed in his early age in the living room, acting up fictitious scenarios with Michael about day-to-day activities, about people, about occurrences. Sorin considered Michael much like all young kids would do their father's divine, until in the later stages, where Michael confessed about his sexual excesses, which distanced Sorin from him and probably even diminished his divinity towards his father. But thanks to these living room vacations with theological subjects, Soren, from a young age had taken a keen interest in theology. And in fact, had started his university studies in theology before he switched to literature. He was always an intellectual, a bohemian intellectual regardless. A comfortable al- life allowed him to be. And it did not seem all that bad for him. Life didn't seem all that bad to him and he didn't seem to mind the vagaries of it. At one point, he had a considerable debt, which his father, Michael, had later paid off. The mark changed, though, however, uh, or what many believe as a cornerstone moment in Soren's life had happened in 1841, when he broke off his engagement with uh, Regine Olsen, or Regina, as you would call in Danish. They'd met when Regine was 15, and after a two-year engagement, Soren broke it off with a letter that read, and I quote, in the Orient, it means death to receive a silken cord, but in this case, to mail the ring is likely to mean death for the sender. It did mean death to him, metaphorically. While the pluralism may have always been in him, this incident may have pushed Soren to single-mindedly choose his one true passion, his salvation of his soul. It was to remain his most important thinking throughout his life. Many theories, though, have been afloat with uh, why him broke off his engagement. The prominent ones are that he saw a mother figure in Rajin and wanted to not mess with the virgin image of that mother figure or that of the thought that Rajin was a lot of joy and wasn't sure if she understood his suffering or have it in her to withstand his melancholy. The other unpopular theories include that he loved Rajin but not in a traditional way, not in a classical way but as a reflection of his poetic self. He loved her like a mirage And he was incapable of mentally consummating that relationship, although Soren always thought he was extraordinarily erotic. The other theory that he must have discovered a relationship to be an obstacle in pursuit of his true passion, the job of finding his salvation for the soul. In either case, Regine's later marriage had caused him severe depression, which continued coupled with oceanic anxiety throughout the rest of his life. There's a lot of dialogue about Regine's influence on him and also about his hunchback. In fact, a few researchers have spent volumes discussing and dissecting these as the thorn in the flesh that shaped Kierkegaard as we knew him in the later years. At least in this podcast, though, we would at least in the course wouldn't dwell on either, Uh, but instead we'll look about uh, the many aspects of Kierkegaard, the plurality of him, his style. And in his, his teachings and his his revolt against the uh, church, we wouldn't dwell a lot on his personality but more about his writings. Although he was a bundle of joy and abysmally morose at the same time, this man was a poet, a philosopher, a seducer, all when he chose to be. Of all that, I think he retained his poet's disposition through the entire life, although he didn't like dwelling on the aesthetic phases of life. He was... However, aware consciously of the pluralism in him, and it came out brilliantly in all of his works. He believed between the gloom of the day and his reality, somewhere in that middle lied his fantasy, and which is what he explored in his stories. His devout Christian household seemed to have helped him internalize Christianity like no other of his time. He internalized it uh, for the Christianity which he felt was most suited to inner exploration, but not the mainstream narrative of the day. It's incredible, even after 165 years after Kierkegaard today, the same constructs and institutions he revolted haven't changed by a bit. If you look at religious institutions of today, they all stink of the same issue. He was a Christian though, to begin with. But religion was an extremely personal topic to him. He believed Christianity as it was driven by the state as flawed because of the shape it had assumed. For instance, the state-run Church of Denmark, which I think was a Lutheran church, for all the clergy that worked in it had guaranteed housing sanctions and the clergy was considered the elite from the plebiscite, which was counterintuitive and uh, contradictory to the idea of Christianity that Kierkegaard personally believed on or the first followers of christ who had to endure the pain the suffering the persecution they weren't recognized they were neither rewarded for it according to kirkegaard the idea of state sanctioned security defeated the idea of being one before the god with all of our insecurity of all the struggles with church and authority is rebellion against a bishop minster whom he was introduced to as a child by his father and his own brother were the more prominent ones. Bishop Meunster, though, he was an assuming, unassuming man. He was a well-mannered man, unambitious, whom Kierkegaard had created symbolisms out of as a complacent individual. It is this sentiment that later led to his scathing a- attacks against the middle-class man as well. And also on his brother, uh, Bishop himself. His brother, on his part, defended himself by publishing lectures on Kierkegaard as to how eccentric and unrealistic he was. Kierkegaard's struggle struggled actually of of being or having to be the single one in front of the god and that was for the most part fought alone. Although in later stages of his life he while did not ever regret that he was alone in this he felt dismayed by the lack of an able companion to share and not even any sympathizer for that matter. He, for the most part, in the latter stages of his life, restricted his writings to just the journals. I think seems to be the theme with many philosophers. In one of these sessions, we'll explore Frederick Nietzsche and how you would realize even Nietzsche had uh, restricted himself to journals in the latter stages of his life. His rebellion, though, against the clergy is thats is that they're actually not seekers, is what they thought. They're not seekers in the truest sense, but are seekers of clerical positions. That's one of his biggest themes of his work. It must have also been to do with the fact that his work, specifically exercise in Christianity, hasn't been well received by the church. It is possible though that uh, the, the, the system of the day, or the plebiscite at least, did not understand the full range and the extremities in Kierkegaard's writing. He was a master of indirect communication, much like Socrates. Socrates himself actually used the midwifery method to extract truth from the deepest wells of an individual. But I'm pretty sure the clergy or the elite of the day understood Kierkegaard. Um, History would tell us that they found him threatening, questioning the systems they they had so carefully built to sustain themselves. It is kind of similar akin to the situation of today in our country, in India, where a revolt against a system gets met with uh, un- unrealistic rage and uh, wrath and I think it's the curse of truth. I have believed in it personally that if history is any proof, uh, not just with Kierkegaard, before or after, if you, if you talk about the Galileos of the day or if you talk about Ptolemies of the day, if history is any proof, we have been, as humankind, as humanity, been plagued with the curse of truth since eternities. This phase also is, I think, the beginning of rebellion against systemic oppression by institutions in Europe. Uh, the the Kierkegaard's revolt against the church, but I think curse of truth has been in in human race since the time the race existed. A uh, thirty years later, after Kierkegaard, Tolstoy took apart Russian Orthodox Church, though with with almost similar aggression, but of more precision. Although uh, I think for the most part, what happened is. Kierkegaard's hard work or labor against the church is unreverted when, com- when you compare him with the contemporaries like Marx or Tolstoy a little later, whose revolts have been met with a larger acceptance. I've sort of been thinking about this. Part of this may be because Tolstoy, Marx, even Dostoevsky later on, uh, to an extent were uh, predominantly social revolutionaries. Marx, predominantly social revolutionary. Kierkegaard did not consider himself with these social conditions in the classical sense. Neither his dialogue included scientific progress, which were to be the uh, main tools in the hands of social revolutionaries like Marx later on. Kierkegaard's fight was about oneself, was about finding soul. His fight was of religious existence, the one before man The one before God, the single one, the single man before God. He was astounded by the religious bankruptcy and moral bankruptcy of the day and believed that the elite, including uh, Bishop Minster, knew that he was right, but no one cared to listen. Perhaps the greatest personal burden he carried was he wanted to remain incognito, which clearly did not happen. If there's one thing he failed miserably at amongst a host of things, I think it is. Uh, his desire to remain incognito, which could never get fulfilled. I personally think it is, it is this, if not the lack of, it is this, this aspect of Kierkegaard of not focusing or, or, or not concerning himself with social revolutionaries or scientific progress that made him less acceptable to the masses of the day. And rightfully so, he did not consider them. Um, His spiritual practice, while it remained unperturbed, he believed that there are three stages to an evolving spiritual life. The aesthetic, the ethical and religious stages. While Kierkegaard retained his poet's disposition throughout his life, it is this stage that bothered him the most, that irked him the most, the aesthetic. He condemned the idea of life as an aesthetic experience, while he believed all three stages cannot coexist with each other, he believed the aesthetic stage has to be the most feeble and the life of spirit must move upwards in these stages is what he believed. The existentialists after him, Sartre included, seem to have devoted a great portion to this very stage that Kierkegaard frowned upon. For Kierkegaard, the God-centered way of life uh, did not include staying here in the aesthetic stage but having to move upward in spirit. The later existentialists like Camus too believed life was senseless but he thought we had to find a meaning for it. Kierkegaard believed however to exist is to exist ethically and to face new moral choices uh, an eternal or perpetual either or. He believed the aesthetic man remains largely static and unperturbed while the moral man is becoming and becoming. Only way he thought to partake in eternity is to be confronted with new moral choices and of becoming he he, he remarked that there is a stability there an authentic one beyond the veils of aesthetic a remarkable sustainable form of life could be found in the ethical ways of living he believed uh, our intelligence human intelligence can never remain beyond life and therefore it's important we look upon it as a spectator To make sense of it and he was a passionate and a detached observer of the world and of himself. Believed in our faith knowledge and taking a leap of faith in our journey to becoming the single one in front of the god rather than the philosophers whom even today's world we prominently see them the ones that build castles of reason and rationality and logic and live in the dog houses of them all of us have been guilty of it. I think our education system of today also sort of bounds us or restricts us to build uh, castles of reason and uh, it's impossible for us to break out of the realms of reason. He opposed it. He believed reason is bound to the questions and I quote, for what and why am I doing this or why is this happening? End quote. He believed, he believed, uh, the god's work the work of god is beyond our understanding and he may appear unreasonable to all of us but he urged people to believe he urged them to consider faith's knowledge he said a man's life is of uh, continuous becoming and not necessarily only biological or psychological becoming but it, 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 its sense of becoming is uh, is is, uh, is because we are is uh, because we are continuously faced by the perpetual eater or, or of moral dilemma By striving to become is what he thought a man could, uh, uh, why man could never really be a Christian but only attempt to be one. And that's, I think, the most profound part of his discourse. He believed while in all of his heart that uh, uh, being a seeker in front of the God and the one in front of the God was of paramount importance and his salvation of soul is the most important discourse, He also believed you could never really become a Christian, but he could only attempt to be one. But he urged, though, for us to be continuous seekers and not to be bound by any castles of reason, logic, however suitable they seem to us and however convenient. Now, in today's world, um, this seems to be a bit of an abomination, right? When When somebody tells you to not be bound by rationality when our education system has over the years uh, cultivated the idea of rationality into us. But what Kierkegaard really meant was, he did not discredit reason while he attacked reason and rationality. He said, rationality is an important way to look at the objective world, to look at the natural world. But when you think about your existence, it has to be on faiths. uh, He said there, reason is uh, insufficient it is that rigid boundaries of reason that he thought was hampering when you think about uh, existence and that this is in this vein that he would revolt against the then practices of religion he would revolt against the conformist methods of religion against the masses it is also in this thematic that he led his fight against christianity he thought Christianity in its form of the day, much like any religion of today, if uh, we consider even today's religion, he thought uh, Christianity in its form is driving people away from being Christian with its rigid systems and clerical institutions. He believed it had turned into a bit of a moral police. In, in, this is prominent. Even if you sort of think back to today, uh, you would realize that practitioners of religion uh, and the religious belief that a majority partakes in is what has driven the true religious followers out of it. It is what has driven people into atheism. Kierkegaard revolted against these kind of impositions, these boundaries or these moral policing or this mass knowledge. He revolted against it. He despised the masses though, whom he called the middle class man, for whom he thought something like marriage is a convenience, a clerical position, a house to live in, the dreams that the middle-class men chase, he thought, are not enough for them to be naked in front of the god. These attacks on middle-class men, though, have, have have continued after him. It, they weren't really only Kierkegaard's attacks. If you read Nietzsche's Zarathustra, he talks about an ubermensch, the superman who wants to rise above the middle-class man and pride. Dostoevsky's uh, Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers Karamazov, He believes that the middle class man, the mass man, can never be a leader and he doesn't want to be a leader, is what he believes. He believes uh, he wants to be told what is to be done. He wants to follow but not lead and he believes it's too much pressure on the mass man and he's conveniently okay to be sucked and subdued in the realms of conformity. The mass man, in Kierkegaard's view, he uses God as a refuge for his sins. He's not really one in front of the God. He fought against state recognizing them as christians he fought against state recognizing people who only when they're swearing would utter the word of god as christians and the state dispatching them to eternity as christians i mean these words if you think about it ring true to even this day of how you would consider religious practitioners of the day and how we would credit people to be religious if you look at your own family you would observe that if you are a hindu for example the essence of hinduism is lost but the uh, scriptural conformist understanding of Hinduism is what we retain, and it's the same with uh, Christianity, if it's the same with Islam, it's the same with any religion that you find today. It's ironic that, that it also the irony is what Kierkegaard thrived in that 170 years after that we haven't changed, and this is exactly the thematic that he fought against that people drive into paganism or people strive into atheism is happening because the religious institutions are pushing them that is why he despised the masses and he fought against the state recognizing these people as religious practitioners. Kierkegaard believed only a leap of faith would give our souls salvation. The opposite of sin he believed is not virtue but faith. Only that faith would lead into an ethical life, which is a perpetual, eternal, either or is what he believed. And such true believers, he believes, are always alone. It is in this regard he was different from the later existentialists who focused on new humanism and more on the aesthetic side of it. It was actually this uh, spiritual freedom that he sought out, unlike the Marx or the Tolstoys later, who in their revolt against religion, sought out social and scientific freedoms which was i think more appealing to the plebiscite because it is a more relatable oppression right we are socially oppressed uh, by the systems and church was playing a major part of it in case of tolstoy the russian orthodox church that he took apart was uh, is keeping people sub subdued and suppressed and and it you when you're going to address the social anxieties, you become more relatable. Much like you think to this day, if you today actually if you think about it in today's time, if you look at Twitters, if you look at Facebooks, if you look at the news of today, our fight is always social and political strategies. Somehow they've become I think it's wrong to say somehow they've become. They have been the P zeros, if there is a an expression to use for us. They've been the prima facie they've been the biggest problems that we had to solve to get to the next level perhaps i think this was the aesthetic that Sorki, uh, soren Kierkegaard was talking about that you know you had to overcome the first stage of life the aesthetic only then can you get into the second stage of life which is the ethical or the moral or the perpetual either or and Kierkegaard focused heavily on the religious existence of one's existence before the God rather than the uh, social constructs of the day, which curbed in some sense, uh, in all senses really, the freedom of the day, which was uh, a potent weapon, by the way, in the hands of Marx later on. For Kierkegaard, however, God mattered more, more than the masses, and to be naked in front of the God and his reproach that atheists are not the true enemies of religion but religious practitioners themselves are which which is valid uh, even today and echoes through the time. He believed that we had to fight hard to establish a relationship with God and he believed it's a ridiculously hard fight but only by sustaining it he believed we would discover truth and facing the suffering in that regard he thought was paramount. Now when we In the course of our next few podcasts, if if and when we get to talk about Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, we'd see how these ideas are channeled across but uh, reimagined in different forms. And I think it would make for a nice comparative understanding of these philosophers and great thinkers. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it intrigued you at least by a bit to explore Sören Kierkegaard's writings the tonal quality of it may have portrayed the anxious slightly cynical kierkegaard but he was a joy to read really he was a seducer a poet a free thinker all about the same time and if 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 anything he was never the conformist you should explore more of his works to discover uh, multiple facets of kierkegaard and probably the next production i would do uh, one of the other facets of him Although I was kind of thinking of introducing Dostoevsky seems like a logical place to go from Kierkegaard, we would uh, try and cover one of the other facets of Kierkegaard in one of the upcoming sessions as well. If it piqued your interest by a little, uh, go read Kierkegaard, and he's an amazing uh, philosopher and a scholar and very different from the next set of existentialists that uh, you would get introduced to as you continue to keep reading and I think While there were astounding similarities between Kierkegaard and Nietzsche in the idea of how one pursues uh, their freedom The major difference I think if when you later explore Nietzsche you would realize and we would realize together hopefully that Nietzsche's uh, Superman, Ubermensch Lacked humility. If you look at Kierkegaard's divinity, or if you look at Kierkegaard's experience before God, his one uh, endearing quality is of humility. He was humble always, and he strived for that humility in front of God. And Nietzsche's Ubermensch is he wanted to pry on the middle-class man, and he was a conscience-free man. The Nietzsche's Ubermensch. We'd, we'd explore various themes of this as we'd go along and we'd do various lectures if we could. So, um, thanks for keeping up. Um, it was fun for me also doing this and I, I I think I would do a better job at editing and chopping and cutting this video later on. This was more like a free speech and I just kept at it and I hadn't written anything. So, either way, if you'd enjoyed it, I'm glad and if you didn't, I'm sorry, I'd try to do better the next time. Thanks again for keeping up. See you.